where she held the chair of Jewish studies. Um, she's the author of many articles and books, some of which are Little Love in Big Manhattan, The Shlemiel as a Modern Hero, and the, and the I.L. Parents in the Makings of Modern Jewish Culture, and of course, in the issues of anti-Semitism, she recently wrote a book, I guess a few years ago now, on issues of Jewish power, which I would urge you to read in relation to uh, the issues and problems that we're dealing with at the conference. Now, on a personal note, uh, Professor Weiss was one of the first scholars, intellectuals, professors, as a young student at McGill University, that I had the honor to uh, engage in and to learn from. She was an amazing scholar that really brought to life the whole genre of Jewish literature and Jewish culture in Europe, and it was an amazing uh, experience. I, I still remember the classes and discussions and the readings and the things which were in. So it's particularly uh, a great honor for me to be able to introduce you today. Today, Professor Weiss, I think is the best title in the conference. It's entitled, How Do We Put an End to Anti-Semitism? Now, really, how to do it. <laughs> shorthand here, I simply couldn't say anything, so I hope you will understand that 
that um, I would have loved to have fallen in almost any, any sentence here. So political Zionism then was in the first place a movement of national self-determination that had much in common with other such parallel national movements, for example, in Ireland and Poland and so forth. But unlike other national movements, which faced specific opposition, Jews confronted the growing problem of anti-Semitism, which they thought they could solve by normalizing the political condition of the Jews. And Zionism seemed a plausible solution. Jews had been for too long a dependent minority in other people's lands. If anti-Semitism attacked Jews as usurping aliens, the provocation could probably be removed once the Jews packed up and went home. It made independent sense for Jews to reestablish their homeland at a time of proliferating nation states. And were they to do so, they reasonably expected to achieve the secondary goal of becoming a politically unexceptional people. I think Zionism achieved its primary goal beyond expectations. I won't dwell here on the marvels of Israel except to emphasize that Zionism succeeded in whatever depended on Jewish effort, energy, and will. It proved mistaken, however, in its belief that anti-Semitism attacked some remediable quality in the Jews, ignoring that anti-Semitism arose not to address the realities of the Jewish situation, but to meet the political needs of others, to satisfy their political needs. Um, normalization depended as much on the reception as on the creation of a Jewish homeland and could not be achieved without it. Jews could not satisfy the accusations against them by responding to the ostensible charges. In the way that experiments yield their results only after they have been conducted, the builders of Israel were entitled to expect political normalization. Those who settled the land and attained sovereignty in the way that so many other countries did were entitled to expect that they too would be accorded normal treatment commensurate with international custom. The error lay not in the hope and confidence placed in the Jewish capacity to establish a homeland, but in expecting to find in the Jews a viable solution to the hostility directed against them. In this, it failed. And I think that it is difficult but necessary to completely understand that, that in this secondary goal, it failed. Jean-Paul Sartre's dictum, if the Jew did not exist, the anti-Semite would invent him, is correct in its emphasis on the inventor, but it would be more accurate to say that the status of the Jew had become irrelevant to his political instrumentality. Not their disposition, but their utility as a target determined the course of the wars against them. Anti-Semitism was indeed launched against the people without a homeland, but it could work as well against Jews with or without a state of their own. In 1945, the Arab League was founded around the common goal of preventing the creation of Israel. So far, 
nothing much out of the ordinary. Many emerging countries initially meet with opposition. But what followed was altogether exceptional. Israel won its war of independence, but unlike, for example, Britain's response to the 13 colonies, Arab leaders did not acknowledge Israel's independence. Though one was now dealing with a Jewish country rather than a, Jew, than a dispersed people, the political functions of Israel in Arab politics became almost identical with the functions of the Jew in the politics of Tsarism, Nazism, or Communism. And to say this, of course, is not to compare Tsarism with Nazism or either of those with Arab nationalism or Islamism, but to compare their strategies of organizing politics against the Jews. Moreover, the United Nations failed to live up to its obligation. Although it had voted for the partition of Palestine, it did not fulfill the Charter's commitment to protect nations large and small. The UN allowed the Arab states to refuse Israel recognition, the only state to be thus offended against uh, to the present day. When the countries of the Arab League refused to recognize a member state, they should have been expelled from the international body for failing to abide by its founding principle. This Arab offense rendered Israel exceptional despite its successful establishment of a normative state. More than the offense itself, the international body's condoning of that offense allowed anti-Semitism to become a viable international tool. Almost at every step, the UN functioned in ways that facilitated rather than thwarted the Arab war against a member state. The UN did not generate the politics of anti-Semitism, but by refusing to oppose it, granted it legitimacy. So there was nothing politically exceptional about Zionism. Dozens of new countries have joined the United Nations since 1948. The exception is anti-Zionism, the organization of politics against the Jewish state. I think it's also important to recognize that there was nothing inevitable about this process. The Arab world might have developed differently, as Ephraim Kirsch, Kirsch, Kirsch among others, uh, documents in his recent book, Palestine Betrayed. The Middle East could have seen peoples living side by side had Arab leaders accepted the presence of the Jewish state alongside many others. The United Nations might also have acted differently, just as it could have gone either way in voting partition in 1947. The United States might have exerted very strong and successful pressure on King Saud of Saudi Arabia to accept Israel, and so forth. So to say that the Jews serve the political purposes of others does not mean that anti-Semitism is politically inevitable. It simply means that control over anti-Semitism does not lie with the Jews. Jews may resist their enemies, but they cannot unilaterally halt the war against them because they are not its purveyors. And its purveyors will not halt the war against them because they don't recognize the harm it does to themselves. So that is the first point I would like to make. Going on from there, the Zionist misdiagnosis, however innocent, 
raised expectations that could not be satisfied. And Zionism was then held responsible for having raised false expectations. Having expended so much creative energy in the recovery of the Jewish homeland on the assumption that it was going to reduce anti-Jewish assaults, many Jews and some others were disturbed to find themselves facing greater enmity than ever before. It was hard to be grateful for the acquired capacity for self-defense when one's goal had been to need no self-defense. Far from absorbing the disproof of the Zionist hypothesis, some Jews compounded the er error by attributing the persistence of anti-Semitism to the Jews of Israel or to the Jewish state, having learned nothing from the original mistake of seeking the cause of anti-Semitism in their fellow Jews. Not the actions of Israel, but its utility as a target determined the course of the war against Zionism. Yet, the misapprehension persisted that anti-Zionism could be reduced by Israeli concessions. Now, there's a lot to be said about anti-Semitism, but one of the things that we see about it is that it works through the strategy of the pointing finger. Through this, what I call, political prestidigitation, the kind of thing that a magician practices, the accuser draws attention away from the repressive intentions by pointing to the Jews, the Jews, whose inflated image and extravagant achievements make them a plausible explanation for whatever ails his regime. The pointing finger keeps negative attention focused on the Jews or on the Israelis, who fall into the trap whenever they accept responsibility for a situation that they have not created and cannot control. And they are trapped even earlier at the point of answering to the charge of which they stand accused. In politics as before the law, whoever stands in the dock is the defendant. And whoever points the finger is the plaintiff. The only effective response to the false accusation is effective counter-prosecution. Unless and until the defendant turns plaintiff, anti-Semitism enjoys the free ride, what, what uh, Sartre again so memorably called the fun of anti-Semitism, the fun of negative campaigning. The Zionist misdiagnosis uh, namely, that actions on the part of the Jews will end anti-Semitism, found its apotheosis in the Oslo Accords of 1993. Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin's decision to invite Yasser Arafat to head the Palestinian Authority was, to my, in my humble opinion, an absurd political decision. No threatened country has ever before armed its enemy with the expectation of gaining security. But this is not my subject. So be it. <laughs> I'm quite serious. Israel did as it did. Uh, countries have a right to do as they do. Um, the action was exacerbated, however, by allowing it to be linked to expectations of peace. Once again, Jews pretended that anti-Semitism could be stopped by some remediable action of theirs ignoring that any option of peace lay with their accusers. Now, Rabin might have said, 
the state of Israel under my leadership has decided to make such and such concessions because we feel it is in our national interest to do so for the following reasons. A, B, C, D, uh, for example, uh, a retreat to more defensible borders, uh, to appease international expectations, um, because we want to regroup and be deployed, or whatever, whatever reasons he might say. But, he would say, we are obliged to point out that um, the preposterous imbalance between the belligerents and us, their target, makes it impossible for us to end the conflict. Only Arab leaders can stop what they started. However much we may wish it, Israeli concessions can do nothing, nothing to bring about peace. We did not initiate war, we have no incentive for aggression, and the lopsidedness of the war against us means that only Muslim and Arab leaders can halt incitement against us. We call on them to help their Palestinian brethren improve and govern their society. We call on the international community to help us in penalizing any acts of aggression should there be any violation of the agreement that we now sign, and so on in this vein. And some of you have enlarged on this point in your writings, but the voice of Israel did not. Now, since Israel walked into the peace trap, it was increasingly blamed for the aggression against it. Israeli actions were supposed to bring about peace, so why didn't they? So why not try again with more concessions? The same trap ensnares not only Jews and Israelis, but all people of goodwill. Raising false expectations of peace becomes culpable, even if one is not responsible for the original violence. The more false expectations one raises, domestically and abroad, the more blame one earns. So going on to the third, and in the sense of the last point, in the short run, one can, of course, understand the well-intentioned advice of someone like pollster Frank Luntz, who advises as follows. The only way for Israel to create sympathy is to be on the side working hardest for peace. The best case for Israel is to demonstrate that she is willing to go twice as far as her neighbors to establish peace. In proposing to end the wars against them, Jews appeal to a worldview, and this is I'm turning from his quotation to my own. So thus, in thus proposing to end the wars against them, Jews are appealing to a worldview that champions conflict resolution, that believes in human progress. You heard so many of the speakers this morning appealing to rationality, uh, light, uh, the friendship among nations, and so forth. Trusts in mankind's rational self-interest, seeking harmony and peace, and so forth, and so on. And the catchword for all of this, I would like to find a better one, but I think the catchword for all of this is a kind of benign liberalism, which is thought to represent optimism, hope, and a generous view of human nature. And indeed, Jews were a popular liberal cause in the quarter century between the end of the Second World War and the Yom Kippur War, when it seemed as if momentarily, or as one would say in Yiddish, ot, 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 um, Israel would be able to win the peace. And 
by any reasonable standard, Israel is a beacon of liberalism in an illiberal region. Brett Stevens, for example, explains how he makes the liberal case for Israel on college campuses. He asks the students a series of questions. Um, are you for gay rights? Are you for women's rights? Are you for artists' rights? Are you for an impartial justice system? Are you against capital punishment? And of course, they all say yes, yes, yes. Well, Israel is the only country in the Middle East that applies these values. So don't be a hypocrite. Rather than criticize Israel, defend the values that you uphold and that it uh, embodies. So on any genuine political compass, Jews and Israel are the true north of liberalism, not simply on account of the way they are constituted as a people, but because of the anti-liberal forces ranged against them. Anti-Semitism in all its forms, Christian, Muslim, secular, religious, totalitarian, authoritarian, is an anti-liberal movement, casting liberalism as a Jewish conspiracy. And Arab opponents of Israel also oppose liberal democracy. One would therefore expect this alignment of Israel with liberalism and of anti-Israel with anti-liberalism to win Israel the defense of all liberals. The standard bearers of muscular liberalism, from George Eliot to Scoop Jackson, have done just that. They have used the defense of Jewish rights as the touchstone of liberal principles. Yet here is the paradox. The fiercer anti-Semitism grows, the more it forces a choice between protecting the Jews and liberal faith in conflict resolution, rational uh, behavior, uh, world peace, human progress, and so on. Protecting the Jews requires confronting hostility that is not subject to rational persuasion, as we see it, that does not obey our version of the rule of law, that does not abide by our ideas of fairness, and that does not extend peace and goodwill to others. To side with Israel leaves one exposed to the same hostility that assails the Jews. And so, Self-interest persuades some governments, some democratic governments, and some people to ignore aggression that presumably doesn't concern them. And then, going one step further, they try to justify their callousness by holding Jews responsible for the aggression against them. A very neat trick, and I'm sure that you have seen it performed by so many people. As soon as you can hold Jews responsible for the aggression against them, you don't have to blame yourself, or you don't have to expect of yourself that you should be standing up to the aggression that is being leveled against them. And of course, some Jews try to prove their innocence by separating themselves from the bad Jews who are under attack. So the anti-liberal politics of Jew blame works by persuading us that it is aimed only at the culpable Jews. Um, in sum, Anti-Semitism, I think, can only be stopped by what politics calls a conservative turn. A conservative turn within liberalism, or if necessary, in differentiation from it. And many of us turned, I have to put this in quotation marks, conservative, um, 
precisely to the degree that we realized that anti-Semitism foreclosed more uh, conciliatory options, forcing a choice that we might otherwise never have had to make. Anti-Semitism opposes Western democracies in general, but by singling out the Jews and by projecting the belligerents onto them, it invites liberals to join the attack on the side of the alleged victims. It congratulates liberals for standing with the weak against the strong, even as they are actually joining the strong against those who are being aggressed against. I'm afraid that there is no way of defeating anti-Semitism short of going to war against it, diplomatically, ideationally, and if necessary, militarily. Confident self-assertion is a wonderful first step, and is certainly necessary how wonderful Israel is. And you know how the students on campus, <laughs> bless them, they are so eager to do something. Uh, and so what they try to do is have an Israel fair, uh, or to show the startup nation, or to show how wonderful Israel is and all this. This is their way of countering anti-Semitism. Well, it's ridiculous. But <laughs> it has nothing to do with the other. So confident self-assertion is a very good step, but it is not enough. The resistance has to be equal or greater and smarter and more determined than the assault. So I've tried to show that anti-Semitism cannot be arrested by any remediable quality in the Jews that there are harmful consequences for pretending that concession from Jews um, can stop the aggression against them, and that anti-Semitism forces a choice between peace, in quotation marks, and protection of the Jews. Some people believe that acknowledging the Zionist um, misdiagnosis is discouraging, a symptom of despair. And many people, you know, who, who, you know, who I try to talk about these issues say, oh, that is so pessimistic, that is so despairing. Well, I beg to differ. Um, the despair results from repeating a pattern that is doomed to fail. And, uh, and I, don't, I don't despair at all. That's the one thing that is really true in my uh, inflated title. I do think that the world can ultimately be changed. It, it will take 400 years, 500 years, but one either makes a start or one doesn't ever make a start. And if I didn't believe in it, I mean, I simply would not, um, would not present these ideas. So I, I, I think the difficulty is there, but as I say, there is nothing inevitable to my mind about this uh, phenomenon. So I would really suggest that in the very first place, we start with a harder look at anti-Semitism. Um, I've been reading, for example, Antony Julius's otherwise wonderful history of anti-Semitism in England, which conceives of anti-Semitism as the following, and here I quote, perhaps as a repertoire of attitudes, myths, and defamations in circulation at any given time. It is a kind of discursive swamp a resource on which religious and political movements, writers and artists, <coughs> demagogues, and the variously disaffected all draw without ever draining. 
It is not a political philosophy or anything close to one. It is not a conception of the world. It is merely an idée fixe, a hatred dressed up as a conviction, a protean, unstable combination of received ideas compounded by malice, and so on. All of these things have, uh, you know, are recognizable to us. But clearly, one cannot eradicate something that you cannot even precisely define. Our first task is to drain that discursive swamp ourselves and to identify how anti-Semitism works. And in this, I think we do well to follow the lead of Wilhelm Marr, who conceived of modern anti-Semitism in Germany of the 1870s as, as distinct from all its previous forms, including from previous forms of religious prejudice. Without accepting the racial content of his definition, we do recognize that he was correct in defining anti-Semitism as the organization of modern politics against the Jews. This is what I think it is. Some consider it formless because it absorbs into itself so many contradictory accusations. But its protean nature makes it that much more useful in serving practical ends. And I think that in trying to come back to our schools and campuses and research institutes, I think that the study of politics has to begin to take anti-Semitism extremely seriously as one of its most effective tools. Anti-Semitism has been one of the most effective tools of modern politics, and it should be regarded as such. And we have to provide a kind of taxonomy of initiators, accommodators, fellow travelers, and useful idiots. Uh, or, uh, you know, as one, as, as you say, willing executioners. This is a very useful term, but it also says that there is somebody who is the leader of that, and then there were the others who were the executors. I think a taxonomy of anti-Semitism. Well, we've heard something about what are its generated sources, and then how everyone falls into line after it. In other words, how it works, how it works, what, how, what is its function. And I would say that just one curious thing, I think, is that movements that set themselves positive goals, such as egalitarian distribution of wealth or Aryan supremacy, will eventually be judged by their results, right? And they will be repudiated eventually if the results disappoint. But by contrast, anti-Semitism, it concentrates on grievance and blame. So the greater the failure, the greater its sense of righteousness, and the greater its incitement against Jews. And that may increase with the failure of the polity. So we are now entering another uh, round of peace talks. And I think that the charade is more harmful every time it is performed. What's needed on the part of Arab and Muslim leaders are the necessary preconditions of uh, for coexistence. And what's needed on our part is simply to say that, to tell the truth. Um, what is needed is uh, elated, unconditional recognition of Israel as a Jewish state, an end to all forms of incitement against Israel and the Jewish people's right to a historic homeland, programs of education about the descendants of Isaac, 
to undo the decades of disinformation and malevolence, diplomatic exchanges such as were undertaken but never performed by those who signed peace treaties with Israel and by all those who may yet do so, acknowledgement that the Arabs got the lion's share of Palestine and are solely responsible for the fate of those subsequently des designated as refugees, and if you want to add refinements, one can call for binational courts that may be established to settle individual and institutional claims of Jews from Arab lands and Arabs from Israel. Islamic leaders should undertake the same reconsideration of their anti-Jewish teachings as Catholicism did to root out the aggression that demeans their religion. In any case, I invite us all to draw up minimal and maximal lists of what alone can end the wars against Israel. I think it's clear that no one is going to benefit from yet another Jewish bloodbath, least of all those who now call for it. So I hope that we can muster the courage to demand from our fellow human beings the same tolerance and accommodation that Jews require of themselves. And to defeat anti-Semitism is real tikkun olam. That is the greatest contribution we could make to the repair of the world.